This Sunday, Pastor Randy brought us a sermon asking the question, why tithe? Good morning, everyone. Hear the word of the Lord today from 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 9. We want you to know, brothers and sisters, about the grace of God that has been granted to the churches of Macedonia. For during a severe ordeal of affliction, their abundant joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For as I can testify, they voluntarily gave according to their means and even beyond their means, begging us earnestly for the privilege of sharing in this ministry to the saints. And this, not merely as we expected, they gave themselves first to the Lord and by the will of God to us, so that we might urge Titus that as he had already made a beginning, so he should also complete this generous undertaking among you. Now, as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in utmost eagerness, and in our love for you, so we want you to excel also in this generous undertaking. I do not say this as a command, but I am testing the genuine, genuineness of your love against the earnestness of others. For you know the generous act of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor so that by his poverty you might become rich. This is the word of the Lord. There's some questions that defy an answer. Why do we park on driveways and drive on parkways? Why don't you ever see the headline, Psychic Wins Lottery? Why do doctors call what they do practice? Shouldn't they be good at it by now? And why are there interstate highways in Hawaii? And one of my favorites, why do people say they slept like a baby when babies wake up every two hours? Those are the kinds of questions that will make you go, hmm, and keep you up at night because they defy an answer. Now, some of you have submitted questions that um, almost defy an answer, but Pastor Shauna and Tim have been bringing their A-game to the pulpit uh, these last few weeks and, and connecting us with scripture and tradition that inform these important issues. And I must say that if, I, if preaching were an Olympic sport, Pastor Shauna would have won a gold medal for last Sunday's sermon. It struck a responsive chord in all of our hearts and minds. And by the way, This really warms my heart. The Holy Spirit, who she described as the disruptive, convicting work of the Holy Spirit, 
resulted in several seekers at the altar, two of whom were new names written down in glory. Praise be to God. So this morning, I have been charged with the responsibility of addressing the question, what is tithing, and do we really need to do it? When Pastor Tim approached me about uh, preaching this morning, I said, oh, I drew the short straw, didn't I? (laughs) And they left town. Actually, it's a question that I've been asked many, many times. What is tithing? And usually it's uh, connected to a comment about being an Old Testament practice. Uh, Someone has said the most sensitive nerve in the human body is that which runs from the brain to the wallet. (laughs) Uh, So many preachers avoid preaching on it altogether. But for others, it becomes a hobby horse, especially when the church is in financial difficulty. And it's usually kind of couched in guilt-producing legalistic terms. So all week long, I've been praying that the Lord would enable me to preach this message today with grace and truth in equal doses. The question then, what is the tithe? I would think for many churchgoers, tithing is just another term for generosity. But the word tithe comes from an old English word meaning one-tenth. To tithe is to set aside one-tenth of one's property for God's purposes. Now back in the Old Testament, in the agricultural economy of that day, tithes were not paid with cash or gold, but in crops or even livestock. The tithe is referred to at least on a couple of occasions in the patriarchal narratives. First, after defeating the coalition of eastern kings, Abraham tithed the spoils of war. I almost called it booty, but you would have had a different mental image if I would have used that term. Just erase that from your mind, okay? Just forget I said that. But the spoils of war, he... um, Abraham presented them to Melchizedek, the king of Salem, and the priest of God Most High. Two generations later, Jacob vowed at Bethel that upon his safe return from Haran, he would dedicate to God a tithe of his possessions. In the Old Testament, tithing is legislated on several occasions with with varying details in the last three books of the Pentateuch. All produce, whether seed from the ground or fruit from the tree, must be tied to become what is said to be holy to the Lord. One-tenth of a person's herd or flock is to be dedicated as holy to the Lord in Leviticus 27.32. We find an interesting expression there that it says, whatever passes under the staff which probably means as the animals walked in file, every tenth one would be set aside as the tithe. The tithe is to be the property of the Levites in the Old Testament as a reward for their participation in service for the Lord and as compensation for being denied the land grants of old. In turn, the Levites are required 
uh, to set aside one-tenth of their tithe as a gift to the Lord to be given to the priest. It was called a tenth of the tithe. But there's a different kind of tithe that's prescribed in Deuteronomy where each individual is to take one-tenth of his grain, wine, and oil to the sanctuary together with the firstborn animals and other sacrifices to the place which the Lord has chosen to be eaten before the Lord your God. And should it be impractical to carry so much food to the sanctuary, a monetary equivalent would suffice and be brought to be used for the purchasing of food. It's interesting that the entire family was to rejoice at the banquet and, the, and to invite the Levites to participate. And then every third year, a tithe is given to the Levites and to other poor people who will eat and be filled. Now, these are things that might put you to sleep or maybe have you awake every two hours if you think too much about the Old Testament system. <laughs> uh, we could get bogged down in the details of the Old Testament, but uh, let me just say this. During the first temple era, at least some of the tithes were observed. The prophet Amos, addressing the northern Israelites in the reign of King Jeroboam II, mockingly contrast the people's diligence in tithing with their moral insensitivity. Amos 4.4 4 is kind of dripping with sarcasm. He says, go to Bethel and sin. Go to Gilgal and sin yet more. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three years. Burn unleavened bread as a thank offering and brag about your free will offerings. Boast about them, you Israelites, for this is what you love to do. <laughs> Ezra, or whoever wrote First and Second Chronicles, applauds the Judean zeal and tithing as part of Hezekiah's reform. The tithing was a, a special feature, an important feature of the second temple times. Malachi, the one we usually associate more readily with tithing, Malachi, the last of the Old Testament prophets, urges the people to bring all the tithes into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. This passage seems to imply that tithe was no longer to be given to the Levites, but was for the priest and the temple. Here's the bottom line. Tithing was legislated and practiced in varying degrees by the Old Testament people of God. And I suspect that uh, many, if not most of them, felt duty-bound to participate. But what does the New Testament say about this practice? In the New Testament, Jesus condemns the Pharisees for tithing while neglecting justice and the love of God. However, he stresses that the tithe should also not be neglected. Hear this ringing endorsement of tithing from Jesus in Luke eleven forty two. Woe to you Pharisees, he says, because you give to God a tenth of your mint, rue, and all other kinds of garden herbs, but you neglect justice and the love of God. You should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. Matthew records the same sentiment with a bit more passion. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! 
You give a, a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should, have, you should have practiced the latter, but here again, the words of Jesus, without neglecting the former. So it's not an either or, it's both and. Practice tithing and engage in acts of mercy, justice, and faithfulness. For, just, for Jesus to say that justice, mercy, and faithfulness are more important doesn't mean that tithing is not important. So Jesus recognized the importance of storehouse tithing, and so should we. For us, storehouse is the church to which we belong. And there are many practices in the Old Testament, if you're wondering why it would find its application in, in our day. There are many practices in the Old Testament that don't seem to make sense to us today. Yet many of these ancient ways carry over to the New Testament law of grace as, as part of Christ's promise to not abolish the law, but to fulfill it in us. For instance, we no longer sacrifice animals, but as believers, we are called upon to offer ourselves as living sacrifices. Uh, men are no longer required uh, to be circumcised, but we all have a circumcision of the heart through the Holy Spirit. Most of us don't have grain and produce to bring to the storehouse, but we do have incomes that we can bring the first tenth of it into the church. In other words, just because something is written in the Old Testament doesn't mean that it lacks application to us today in some way or another. While it's true that we are no longer under the law but under grace, we shouldn't forget the purpose of grace. And the purpose of grace is to help us live for God and to do the things He wants us to do. Paul, in writing to the Romans, says that Jesus came that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us, not so that we could altogether dismiss it. In Romans chapter 3, verses 21 to 31, he talks about how we have righteousness through faith and not through the following of the law. But verse 31 adds, do we then, this question, do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. So think of it this way. If you're prone to think in terms of the Old Testament irrelevance for us today, think of it this way. Grace gives us the power and the ability to tithe. I want to kind of stop preaching and testify for a moment. Um, <laughs> yeah, thank you, Steve. Bless your heart. Um, can I just confess that my perception of tithing has evolved quite a bit over my 55 years of practicing it? There have been three stages in my understanding of giving. One, it was a dreadful duty. Two, a weekly discipline, and thirdly, a joyful delight. I think that all of us probably can identify with these three stages. My daddy taught me a lot of important things early in life. 
He taught me, uh, importantly, how to drive a stick ship because the car of his choice for me was our 57 Ford. Uh, it was a, um, well, let's call it a classic. That's what it was. It was a classic. And uh, at times, the gears didn't always shift very easily, but he taught me how to drive a stick shift. He um, also taught me how to change the oil and check the oil and change a tire. Uh, very importantly, he taught me how to catch and clean fish. And he also taught me how to be a good steward of my resources. His name was Shorty. Yeah. Know where I got it now. But he was a giant in the faith. He was only about five foot five or six, but his generosity was legendary. I've been thinking about him this week because of Father's Day, uh, and I've been thinking of how grateful I am that he taught me so much about giving, not so much about what he said, but what he did. He, um, he paid his tithe like clockwork, despite the fact that he was trying to raise four of us kids. He gave generously in every special offering, and he helped so many other people who were down on their luck. He would even loan money to family members and also friends quite often. If money talks, his was usually saying goodbye. And it was usually given to somebody who needed help. He never bought much for himself. He drove those old cars, never bought himself a new car until after I was married, I believe. After the kids were all grown and gone. I remember one time there was a, a love offering for a gospel quartet that came to our church to sing. That's always a dangerous thing for you singers to volunteer to come to any church on a love offering because usually they become like offerings. You know what I mean? And on this occasion, it was a small offering that was given. My dad being the treasurer, uh, the money and the report came to him and he saw how little it was and um, he took seriously the charge from Paul, be generous and willing to share. And so he gladly doubled the offering before sending the quartet on their way. My daddy wasn't in a class by himself, but it sure didn't take long to call the roll. And so with that kind of example, you'd think that I would have been a cheerful giver on day one of my journey with Jesus. Instead, I began with a rather legalistic approach, and tithing was something I had to do, not something I wanted to do. It was a dreadful duty. It wasn't easy to tithe when I made a dollar and a quarter an hour when I pumped gas at Stucky's Pecan Shop. After all, I had to pay for the gas in that 57 Ford, and I had to um, take care of my weekly dates. And, of course, I had to try to dress for success. When I was thinking back this week on my teenage years, I remember buying a pair of shoes that I thought were so cool, and they cost $25. Now, think about how many hours I had to pump gas for a $25 pair of shoes. But in those days, even though it was a puny paycheck, and by the way, it didn't get much bigger when I came to Treveca and I was um, uh, serving food in the food line at the cafeteria, 
Pioneer Food Services paid me kind of a puny paycheck, but we tied anyway. Debbie served as maid in Georgia Hall. So we were quite the couple. We were just rolling in discretionary money. <laughs> but despite the fact that there was never any discretionary money in our pockets, we made tithing a high priority and practice it as a weekly discipline. And that word weekly is spelled W-E-E-K-L-Y and W-E-A-K-L-Y, weekly. And when Debbie and I got married, we both understood that she was the numbers person and I was the word person. Ever the accountant, Debbie made sure that our tithe check was written first and it was often paid in advance. But over time, thank God, we began to view tithing as a joyful delight, something we get to do, not something we had to do. In simplest terms, it's been an evolution from law to grace. The Bible says God loves a cheerful giver, but I would add he accepts money from a grouch. <laughs> sure, we should give cheerfully. And maybe some people say, I can't give cheerfully, so I'm not going to give anything. But I would challenge you to embrace the discipline of giving and tithing, regardless of your feelings, because it's the right thing to do. And those who take that first important step soon discover the joy of grace giving. So the evolution was, for me and for many of us, I'm sure, duty, discipline, and delight. Let's imagine for a moment how the Apostle Paul might answer our question for today. What is tithing and should we do it? In the Corinthian letter, 2 Corinthian letter, chapter 8, that was read, our, our scripture lesson for today, Paul introduces us to the idea of the grace of giving. I'm coming to believe that grace-based giving is the New Testament standard for the redeemed people of God. You may recall the context of this passage was that Paul had organized a collection of funds for the poor people in the church at Jerusalem. And he wants the Corinthians to know about the grace of giving and it was already demonstrated by the Macedonian churches. What does grace-based living look or giving look like? I would suggest to you this morning that grace giving acknowledges God's ownership and our stewardship. Earlier in the letter, Paul had told them and he told us that stewardship derives from the truth that we are not our own, we are bought with a price. In other words, all that we are and all that we have, it's all his. It belongs to God. As a good manager, he's temporarily placed these things in our hands, and as a good manager, I use the owner's resources to further his work. Everyone wants the return on investment these days, ROI, we call it. But transformed lives is the best return on investment I can think of. To invest in the salvation of souls, to give to the mission of Christ, by storehouse tithing, is the greatest return on investment that is known to man. And apparently this was important to Jesus since it was his theme of several of his parables. 
I would go there this morning, but the sermon would get to be as long as Shauna's was last week. It was long but good, wasn't it? <laughs> and, and Paul goes on to build on this um, foundation of stewardship that he's already established about the grace of giving, that is God's ownership and our stewardship. He goes on to uh, describe grace giving as transcending difficult circumstances in verse 2, chapter 8, 2 Corinthians. In this life, we will have trials and tribulations. Regardless of how long or how far we have walked with the Lord, we are going to have trials. And we might be tempted to cite these trials as we build a case for not giving. I approached a church member one time whose husband had left her with three small children, just suddenly left the marriage and the family. And I suggested to her in my naivete that perhaps she could not afford to tithe for a while. And she so strongly replied to me and said it like it was, Pastor, I cannot afford not to tithe. <laughs> and we find the same spirit in the Macedonians. These Macedonian believers gave generously despite their severe trial and their extreme poverty. In fact, Paul says they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. Grace-based giving is based on God's example in Christ. Verse 9. You know, by following the Macedonians' example, it was a splendid example, Paul's readers would prove their authentic nature of their love. But he appeals to an even higher compelling uh, reason. Uh, he adds in the very next verse, that is verse 9, that which speaks of the ultimate motivator for those of us who would give. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes and mine he became poor so that through his poverty, we might become rich. Now, I'm not a prosperity gospel preacher, and I'm not going to suggest to you that you're going to have a get-rich-quick get scheme if you suddenly start placing the offering into the offering plate or online giving. I'm not going to suggest that if you start tithing that you're going to be driving a Mercedes next week. I doubt it. And there are many people who would manipulate uh, others in trying to get them uh, to do such a thing because of this uh, particular verse. His poverty might make us become rich. But I'm so glad this morning that he just didn't give a tenth. Jesus gave it all. Hallelujah. He was definitely rich, dwelling in the splendor of heaven, apart from the sin and corruption of this world. And he gave that up, and he laid aside his privileges, and he took upon himself human flesh, he impoverished himself to the max by taking upon himself the sin of human race in order that we might become rich. I say praise the Lord. Grace-giving looks to the cross and remembers the price that Jesus paid for our salvation. And says, Lord, you gave all for me. What can I give for you? And no amount of giving could be considered excessive in light of Calvary. 
Last week, Pastor Jordan encouraged us to remember the day that Jesus saved us. The day we heard him call out our name. (laughs) If you're struggling with tithing and giving generously, I invite you to do that. Remember the day you heard Jesus call your name. Remember the day that he saved you. The particulars are unique to each of us, but the common refrain in each of our stories sounds something like this. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. It's a miraculous rags-to-riches story. For your sakes he became poor so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Thanks be to God. As children of the King as joint heirs with Jesus, and we who are to be like Jesus, let's be generous givers. Grace giving is the result of inner motivation, not outward compulsion. Verses 3 to 5, I want you to note the phrases that Paul employs here to describe the generous giving of the Macedonians entirely on their own. Not because Paul or anyone else pressured them or manipulated them. Urgently pleaded, he says, with us for the privilege of sharing. (laughs) Now, I, I need to say very quickly, if you're going to plead with a pastor for the privilege of giving, I suggest that you arrange to have the paramedic nearby with a defibrillator. That could scare some pastors if you begged them for the privilege of giving. They gave cheerfully, not grudgingly, verse 7. So motivation is crucial in grace giving. I would suggest to you this morning that it's better to give a small amount based on a loving response to God's grace than it is to give a large amount based on outward pressure or even pride. The key to understanding And experience in grace giving is tucked away in verse 5. If you haven't heard anything else I've said this morning, please hear this. They gave themselves first to the Lord. That's why they could be so generous. Martin Luther said, he who has given someone his heart will also give him his purse. Tithing and generous giving is a matter of the heart. And I want to close this morning with a penetrating question. Have you given your heart to the Lord? I would suggest if you really done so, you'll give him your purse. For you see, we we own our money, but it can easily start owning us if we're not careful. I, uh, over the years, as pastor and as district superintendent, I've heard people Ask the question, is it net or gross giving? I've seen some of the records, and some of them are pretty gross. <laughs> but uh, uh, seem to seem to want to know just how little people can get by on sometimes. But if you, if you responded to his grace and given him your heart, the question becomes, how much can I give instead of how much must I give? And by the way, if I were to ask my dad the question about tithing under grace, he would quickly respond, you can't outgive God. Truer words have never been spoken.
for you. See, Dad gave himself to the Lord as members of First Church of the Nazarene and Macon, Georgia, gathered around him at the conclusion of a Sunday morning service. And in those days, back in those days, there would oftentimes be lay people who would gather around people that the Lord, the Spirit, had placed upon their hearts. And a group of people were burdened for my dad. And at the end of that service that day, they, I wasn't in the world yet. I didn't, well, I guess I was, but very young. But I've had people describe the experience to me. They gathered around him and praying with great conviction for the salvation of his soul. It was a white-knuckle moment when he was holding on. You know what I mean? The spirit that Shauna preached on last week, convicting, disrupting. And in that white-knuckle moment, my dad gave his heart to Jesus, and it changed the trajectory of his life and mine for eternity. He gave himself first to the Lord. That's why he would say today, you can't outgive God. So do we really need to tithe? <laughs> the answer is a resounding no, apparently, for the majority of those who attend church these days. I'm not talking about this church, but the church. According to some recent surveys, only about 5% of all churchgoers are tithing. About 20% of the church members contribute 80% of the congregational income. 80% of all Americans only give away about 2% of their income to various causes. Interestingly, during the Great Depression, that number was 3.3%. Can I just share with you a great concern I have? What's really troubling me is the, the trend of generational giving. You see, my dad belonged to the builder generation. I belong to the boomer generation, born right in the heart of the boom. <laughs> but you know, uh, the builders and the boomers are dying off. Many of my peers have already gone on to their eternal reward. And the truth is that builders and boomers have been the financial pillars of the church for many years now. And I don't want to indicate that I don't believe in our young adults. I do. Uh, I thank God for them. I thank God for their passion for the real work of, of compassionate ministries, for instance, and so many other areas. But my concern is as we boomers pass the baton to the next generation, that somehow we'll lose sight of storehouse tithing. There are other ways to give and to give generously. But tithing is God's method of the support of the church, not bingo, <laughs> not uh, cakewalks or whatever that we might use to raise money, raffles. God's method is tithing. And what I'm concerned about is that tithing has dropped off from 1990 to 2020 about 50 percent. 
I know some of the young people, many of the young people in this congregation have given themselves first to the Lord. And I know many of them are storehouse tithing. But let's make it systematic. Let's make it an investment in souls for whom Christ died. And here's why. Not quoting a great theologian this morning. My dad believed in neology more than theology. <laughs> he would say, you just can't outgive God. Amen? Well, I've said enough. No one throwing tomatoes at me this morning. Thank you for your kind attention. May God bless us with a spirit of generosity. Pastor Jeremy. Thanks for tuning in this week. If you'd like to join us for worship next week, we have a couple options available for you. You're welcome to join us online at 8.45, beginning with our virtual lobby, followed by service at 9 a.m. on Facebook Live. Or you can join us on campus at 335 Murfreesboro Pike for worship at 9 a.m., followed by discipleship classes at 10.30.